Hey, Forge family. I'm a little under the weather here, uh, so I will do my best to cover my cough and, um, and not sniffle at you. But I appreciate your prayers for quick recovery for that. So in podcast number six last week, we talked about some prayer forms that can correct sighs, shudders, grumbles, and the self-talk that puts us in an unrealistic light with ourselves. We either elevate ourselves or we push ourselves down into the muck. The breath prayers that are anchored to Scripture can arrest our momentum, quiet our hearts, and shift us from darkness to light. As you prayed the breath prayers last week, what Scriptures did you use? Was it illuminating? Did God refocus you? Did he remind you of his love and his mercy? Heavenly Father, thank you for sending Holy Spirit to lead us into all truth. Now, some of the spiritual disciplines, Lord, that we're, we've been practicing them now for some weeks, some of these have counterfeits, ones in which the source is not Scripture, not your promises, and not ones that honor or worship you. So, Lord, we would be discerning but bold to follow in the footsteps of Jesus. In his name, amen. <clears throat> this week in episode number seven of this spiritual formation series, I want to pause just briefly. See, no one, no one agrees to all the short or long lists of spiritual disciplines that are out there. What is agreed upon is that some of the disciplines are to quiet us, to help us withdraw, to be listening for God. We've shared some of those in the solitude, silence, fasting, and self-reflection disciplines. And again, some of the disciplines are to help us engage, to act, to move and think and trust in new ways. Of them, I believe that chastity, breath prayers, and the forward push of the Spirit of God on self-reflection, they're all part of the engaging disciplines. This week, we're again on the engagement side, okay, the action side. In, in episode number seven, we're going to be looking at the discipline of gratitude. I want us to look at several Bible passages to see this discipline as it's played out in real life. Let's look at Genesis 14 and, and one of the accounts in the life of Abram. Now, I'm not going to teach this passage just, I'm going to set the stage for us and, and then draw out the, the portion on gratitude. So here's, here's Abram, whose compound, if you will, his tent city and his flocks are spread over the crest of the mountains above the Dead Sea, if you will. He can look, look, walk to the right and look down into the hole, and there's Sodom and Gomorrah. Okay? But he chose to stay on the high places, and his nephew Lot had taken his family and departed and, and gone down to the city of Sodom. And that sets the stage for this. And then uh, chapter 14 talks about four powerful kings, Amraphel, Arioch, Ketelamer, and Tidal. Okay? These four kings had th 12 years before uh, come through in an allied band of armies and had overwhelmed and subjugated uh, the lands around the Dead Sea to the east and to the south. 
and for 12 years, those um, nations and cities and people groups had been vassal states. They'd been paying tribute. But in the, the Texas, in the 13th year, <clears throat> five kings rose up and rebelled against those four victorious kings that had oppressed them. And they, uh, they went to war. Here comes the same four. Amraphel, Ariok, Ketelamur, and Tidal. And they come and they sweep around the eastern wall and into the south of the Dead Sea. And, and by the time the first battles are done, uh, there are six people groups, warlike, raiding people groups that have been crushed. And if they are survivors, they're now slaves. Okay, And then those four kings come up to face the original five rebellious kings in the valley. All right, That includes the king of Sodom and the king of Gomorrah. And almost immediately, the text says, the, the armies of Sodom and Gomorrah and the other three kings began to flee. And they fell into the tar pits and the kings fled and got away. And there's a great victory. And so the four kings from the north... You know, again, Amraphel, Ariok, Ketelam are entitled. They, they, they take the people and they take all the food supplies and they begin to return to the north. They've won all the battles and they've taken all the booty. And the people, and they, and they, were, they begin to advance north. They go up the Jordan River, up the Rift Valley. A word comes to Abram that Lot and his family have been taken as captives. Immediately, Abram gathers 318 of his trained men, men who had been born as children in his encampment. And he trained them. He raised them to fight. Plus a handful of Hittite uh, allies that, he was, that were around him on that crest. So it's not a large band of men. Perhaps 400, 500, we don't know, but it was not many. Okay, and they begin to jog. <clears throat> they begin to, to move quickly up the spine of Israel to interdict these departing armies. Okay, below them to the right will be the track that those armies went through. They didn't go down there because there's always a rear guard action with armies. They stayed up on the, on the spine and they ran and ultimately they catch up with these departing armies who are partying, they're drinking, they're using the women and the children. You know, ancient ancient battle rules and and how armies move was wicked. Okay, so there's a party going on. The text says Abram divides his forces and attacks them at night. Okay, it's not the not the only time in scripture that you see this strategy. Okay, not traditional battle maneuvers. You don't, you don't divide your forces against a superior force. Nevertheless, that's what Abram does. Okay, and he attacks at night, and he sets the camp into a panic and starts a rout so that these four armies pick up what they can grab, and they run. And the text says that Abram and his band pursued them another 50 miles beyond, up north, beyond Damascus. <coughs> Excuse me. When he returns, the text says Abram brought back, quote, all the goods and his nephew Lot and Lot's possessions and also the women and the people. Now, when he comes south, when Abram comes south with all this stuff that he picked up in the camp, 
all the booty, okay, from 11 different battles, 11 different people groups that had lost, okay? He comes down the spine of Israel. He doesn't go down into the Jordan Valley. That's very difficult for a small force to defend themselves in those close confines of the valley. Hard to have a, you know, a rear guard when you know there's armies back there that could turn around and come and get you. So he stays up on the, on the crest. As he comes close to the city of Salem, what we call Jerusalem today, the Jebusite stronghold, then and, you know, out comes uh, Melchizedek, the king of Salem, and with him comes the king of Sodom, and they meet Abram. So let's read verses 18 to 20 of Genesis 14. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Now he was a priest of God Most High, and he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And the next line is amazing. It says, And he, Abram, gave him, Melchizedek, a tenth of all. Okay, 10% of that vast sum was an amazing, spontaneous offering. Now here I want us to see what gratitude looks like. It surpasses gratefulness and thankfulness and praise. It moves us to action. Here, the gratitude of Abram to God Most High is in stark contrast to the sly offer of the king of Sodom in verses 21 and following. It says, And Abram said, <clears throat> oh, excuse me, verse 21, The king of Sodom said to Abram, Give the people to me and take the goods for yourself. And Abram said to the king of Sodom, I've sworn to the Lord God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, that I will not take a thread or a sandal thong or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing. Okay? His gratitude was activated. Excuse me, his gratitude had activated his discernment. He quickly saw where the king of Sodom was going. Okay? And he steps back. The blessing of God is vastly more than anything that he could have taken back home with him in terms of the goods from that victory. Now, let's look at the account of the birth of Samuel in 1 Samuel chapter 1. Okay, we're going to roll forward maybe almost a thousand years. Okay, 900 years. All right. And, and in the, 1 Samuel 1, it tells a story of a man named Elkanah. And he has two wives. The first one is Hannah, and she's beloved. The second wife is named Panina. <clears throat> Hannah has a, a um, she's infertile. Okay? The, the text says, the Lord has stopped her womb. She cannot bear children. Remember where this has occurred? When we did the, the story of, of, uh, of, of Jacob and the story of Joseph? All right? God is all over this, all right? First wife to Elkanah. He, he loves this woman. He cares for this woman. He honors this woman. 
but she can't bear children. And the second wife, Panina, never lets up. She displays the latest baby, and she's got a bunch of them. It's the neener, 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 provocative, abrasive, nasty infighting that was in the, in the household of Jacob. All right? <clears throat> you remember Rachel's sharp rejoinder to Jacob when Leah was bearing child after child after child? Rachel turns to Jacob, and she says, Give me children, or I die. In the Jacob story. Here, Hannah has had enough. And she takes herself off privately to go to the house of God in Shiloh. So when the people of Israel came up into the land, they brought the tabernacle and they built it up again in Shiloh. And she goes to that house of God and she stands at the corner post. Then go in. And she's a woman, okay? She stands at the corner post. She's weeping and in great distress. And she makes a vow to the Lord that should she be given, that she should give birth to a son, she would give that firstborn son back to the Lord for a lifetime service in the tabernacle. Eli, the priest in Shiloh, takes her for a drunken, dissolute woman. But Hannah gets up in his face and explains that she has been pouring out her soul before the Lord. Sort of shuts down the priest. And finally he understands what's going on and he says, he sends her off with a blessing. He says, go in peace and may the God of Israel grant your request. Immediately, the countenance of Hannah changes. Her face changes. Her posture changes. Wash your face, comb your hair, straighten your shoulders, lift your chin, and go back to the family. And in due time, she conceives a child. And sure enough, the baby is born. It's a boy. And she names him Shemuel, Samuel, because, quote, I have asked him of the Lord, unquote. And when the child is weaned, okay, some years pass here, years pass, still a little boy, she takes a thank offering to Shiloh, and she brought the boy to Eli. Now, Hannah was thankful as her offering of a bull a heaping bushel of flour and a jug of wine displays. See, that's, that's a thank offering under the law. But more than thankful, her gratitude to God was to offer her firstborn to the service of the Lord. You see, gratitude has a face. It has actions. It can be radical. It is always generous. And it may be sacrificial. And as it turns out, Samuel is one of the great hinges of history. He saves the nation from dark days, from the days of the judges, and pivots it to the days of the kings. Now, let's look at Luke chapter 17, New Testament. Again, I'm not going to teach it. I'm just going to highlight some things here because I want you to... to be captivated by the gratitude that's here. Jesus and his disciples are transiting south. They're coming out of Galilee. They're headed for Jerusalem. And to get there, they've got to go through Samaria. Now, Samaria was something the Jews walked through quickly. They didn't stop at. They didn't. There wasn't lodgings. 
They would camp before the border and camp after the border. You know, here comes Jesus with his disciples. The text in verse 11 says of Luke 17, it says, And it came about while he was on the way to Jerusalem that he was passing between Samaria and Galilee. And as he entered a certain village, there met him ten leprous men who stood at a distance. They raised their voices and said, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, he said to them, Go and show yourselves to the priests. And it came about that as they were going, they were cleansed. Now one of them, when he saw that he'd been healed, turned back, glorified God with a loud voice, and he fell on his face at his feet, giving thanks to him. And he was a Samaritan. Jesus answered and said, Were there not ten cleansed? But the nine, where are they? Were none found who came back to give glory to God except this foreigner? And Jesus said to him, Rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. All right, just quickly. You don't want to stand downwind of ten lepers. Because leprosy, or Hansen's disease, is a disease that dissolves human flesh and leaves you vulnerable to all kinds of other diseases that get into the soft, squishy, disease-based stuff that's on your skin. You lose fingers and toes and noses and ears, and it kills you. It's, it, was, it was lethal, slowly. Okay? It takes over your life and kills you. And it, and people with leprosy were quarantined. They were sent outside the city, outside the camp, and, it, and they depended on their families to, to clothe them and feed them or not. So they were usually desperate and living in rags, covered with filth and disease. And you didn't want to be downwind because they stunk. So they stand off to the side and they cry out with a voice that says, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. And immediately Jesus, you know, he doesn't run over and hug each one, pat them on the shoulder, hold their hands. He just turns and with his voice of authority and peace from heaven says, you go to the priests and show yourselves. Well, that instruction is what is the law requires when someone has been healed of leprosy. Leviticus chapter 4 says that if a man or woman has contracted this disease, you're quarantined, you're sent outside the camp. But if God heals you, the way to come back into fellowship, to come back to your family and back into the company of Israel is you go and present yourself to the priest. And if the priest determines, wow, something's happened here, but there's a week of quarantine, okay, still, we're going to watch you, we're going to help you, we're going to feed you, you know, we're going you know, to watch and see what God has done. And then, if in fact the inspection of your body shows absolute clean skin, wholeness, healing, then you are to wash yourselves, wash your clothes, and make an offering of thanks to God. That's what Jesus sent those lepers to do because he knew as they went healing would break out upon them. Ten leave. All are healed but one turns back to glorify God and falls at the feet of Jesus. And, and, and Jesus notes this one, this healed leper, former leper is a Samaritan. All right, Samaritans are half-breed, were half-breed Jews, if you will. They were people who weren't gathered up in the dragnet 
of the Babylonian troops that went through Judah and took the population into captivity in Babylon. Those that hid, those that remained, intermarried with people in the land and settled in and around the, the region in Israel called Samaria, hence Samaritans, and they had an aberrant form of worship. They believed that they should worship at a, uh, on a mountain where Jacob had a well, etc. And uh, they were outcast from Israel. They could not come in to the temple. <coughs> Excuse me. Ten lepers turn and move in their healing toward Jerusalem. <clears throat> One turns back because the Samaritan could not show himself to the priest. And the operant word in this text is, the Samaritan who comes back is glorifying God in a loud voice. Okay? Key word. He, he, he is giving it all. He's not murmuring. He's not whispering. He's not weeping. Okay? So Forge family, the spiritual discipline of gratitude here may be one that is spontaneous, it may be planned, it may be an offering, uh, be offering up all that you have, but in this case of the Samaritan, all he had were rags and a loud voice of praise. And Jesus notes that, says, we're not ten healed, where are the others? Now, let me, uh, let me share briefly um, a gratitude episode. Some of you are familiar with this but I want to peg it to gratitude, okay? Uh, my son, Darren, my number two son, uh, went snowboarding in the spring of his junior year at university. He's very good at it. He was doing some jumps, tricks, and in one of the middle of the one of those tricks, he lost it and landed uh, on his lower back across the pelvic girdle, just very low down across his back. And it hurt. And he was a little, a little achy, and uh, got down off the mountain, you know, obviously snowboarded the rest of the day, but got off the mountain, came home, woke up the next morning with awful testicle pain, terrible pain. <clears throat> and uh, it didn't diminish. It got worse. And Darren began a cycle of seeing doctors. And doctor after doctor uh, ran tests, looked at it, and they came to the conclusion that, you know, you might, you might have this pain forever. It may be with you for life. That's a bad report right there. Uh, and as spring progressed, Darren continued to fall in love with this awesome woman uh, that he'd known since he was a kid. And uh, they got engaged. But every time Darren moved toward Alicia to embrace her, that pain got worse. It was debilitating pain. And we moved into the fall of his senior year. And a wedding was planned. And invitations were printed, and finally Janice and I went to Darren privately and said, Son, this is not the way to start your marriage. And he fought that. He struggled with that. But he recognized what we said was true. And he went to his fiancée, and they postponed the wedding. Alicia was not happy with that. I mean, who, what bride wants to ponder a postponed wedding? And, the, you know, Darren's in-laws. They'd already sent the wedding invitations. Ah, sigh. Okay, so Darren, we, we agreed as a family. We were going to begin to pray in a different way. 
and pursue God in a different way. Uh, and it was perhaps three months later that um, uh, we were going to meetings up and down the state of Alabama following uh, a man named David Hogan. Now, David was a man from Louisiana, born and raised, um, hard life growing up. His daddy was a, a preacher. Uh, he wanted nothing to do with Jesus because he saw how people treated his dad. And the Lord had miraculously saved him and his wife and sent them as missionaries to, Mex to Mexico for, at that point, about 30 years, 35 years, He'd been in southeastern Mexico and had seen God plant a thousand churches and every known disease across the earth had bowed the knee to Jesus as part of his ministry. So we went to Alabama and we took Ryan, our fourth son who has Down syndrome, and we went to be with David Hogan. And then we invited Darren, come fly, come be with us. So Darren flies into Birmingham for an evening meeting and David preaches and David says, okay, now, if you have an incurable disease... You come to the platform and line up on my left. I mean incurable. You know, horrible arthritic problems. And you're on a gurney and you've got a saline drip and you're on oxygen. And, and here's this tall, blonde, fit man. And David comes over to him and says, what's, what's going on, son? And Darren explains the pain. And David said, that's a good prayer. He prayed for him. Went home, slept, no change. And David Hogan was in a different church the following morning in Birmingham. We go over, heard David preach, different message, same ministry line, incurables to the left, and if you want more of God, you line up to the right. And he went through it. Here's Darren again. And he, and he prays again. And then Darren has to get on a flight because he's got classes. And he, and he has projects that are due. So he leaves Alabama and on the flight home, in a darkened cabin on an airplane, God begins to deal with Darren. And when he lands and sleeps a little bit, wakes up, and the pain is greatly diminished. Still there, but greatly diminished. Gets on the phone, calls us in Alabama, and says, can we get a wedding together in two weeks? And my wife talked him, talked him out to a one-month time frame. <laughs> we replanned. We reinstituted the engagement, and the wedding for our son. And, and we went from Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. By Friday of that week, the pain was gone. Never again has Darren had that pain. All right, scroll forward. Yeah, 10, 10, 15 years now, maybe, somewhere in there. Last year, David Hogan brought a team to Half Moon Bay, close to where I live, and uh, was going to minister in Spanish to a Hispanic congregation. But a bunch of us Anglos wanted to be present. And for that to work, we needed to have some, some translation devices that you put on a pair of headsets and someone sits in the back and translates David's message in Spanish into English for the rest of us Anglos who don't, well, we're not fluent in, in Spanish. That, that rental of that equipment was spendy. It was pricey. You know, I started out thinking maybe we would have as many as 50 Anglos that showed up, and then I got the price and went, whoa, I don't think so. And then, you know, the pastor of this local church, Felix, Felix said, oh, I have, we have money, just write it, we'll, we'll, we'll pay for it. And then the Lord got in my heart. And my decision was to rent that equipment and pay for it in gratitude 
for what God had done in my son. Just to quietly say, that's covered. Because gratitude needs to have a face, needs to have an action, needs to be sacrificial somewhat. And so, family, I, I just want you to hear of what God has done in me on one occasion to just move me in gratitude to say, Oh, Lord. Because now I've got a married son and three grandchildren because God stepped in and healed my son. So when God gives favor, you move through that process of saying, Thank you, Lord. I'm grateful, Lord. And then you look for, How do I become a man or a woman of gratitude? When God promotes, how do I respond in gratitude? When God answers, what is the gratitude response? When God heals, how do I pour out gratitude? When God overcomes, I want to live a life of gratitude. So you begin to instruct your spirit to be ready to act, ready to be generous, ready to be radical in your gratitude. And that begins with small things. Simple things. And it grows and grows and grows. Now, obviously, the focus here is not on the giving. The focus is on the heart. Thankfulness prepares the way to gratitude. So you keep a list of things for which you're thankful. And which, over time, become amazing. And worthy of gratitude to the Lord. All right, Forge family. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, thank you for just a few scriptures, examples of gratitude. Plant that seed in our heart so that we begin to practice our thanksgiving and grow a crop of gratitude for your name's sake. Amen. All right, Forge family, I love you. We'll see you soon.